The tenure-track process at American universities is a grind, one shaped by the old adage to publish or perish. But if a junior faculty member manages to successfully navigate the process, publishing as expected, learning to manage a classroom, participating in service, then they're rewarded with tenure. Tenure is an almost permanent employment relationship at universities that's designed to give faculty the freedom, because of the job security, to pursue any area of inquiry they feel drawn to. The problem, of course, is that not everyone makes it through that grind. A growing body of research shows that women, though they receive more than 50% of all PhDs, are not making it through the tenure track process in the same numbers. The experience of women in academia is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guests today are Drs. Leslie McClure and Michelle Cardell, co-authors of a recent study examining the issue of women in academia. McClure is Professor and Chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs at the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University. She does work to try to understand disparities in health, particularly racial and geographic disparities, and the role that the environment plays in them. She's currently the director of the Coordinating Center for the Diabetes Lead Network and the director of the Data Coordinating Center for the Connecting the Dots Autism Center of Excellence. McClure's also chaired the ASA's Task Force on Sexual Harassment and Assault, which led the way in developing policies surrounding sexual misconduct for professional organizations. Cardell is an obesity and nutrition scientist, registered dietitian, and director of Global Clinical Research and Nutrition at WW International, Inc., formerly Weight Watchers, and a faculty member at the University of Florida College of Medicine, where she's also an associate director for the Center for Integrative Cardiovascular and Metabolic Diseases. Her research is focused on three areas, assessing the effects of psychosocial factors on eating behavior and obesity-related disease, the development and implementation of effective healthy lifestyle interventions with a focus on underserved populations, and improving gender equity within academia. Leslie and Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Thanks so much. Just to get the conversation started, you were among a a team of authors who published this article in the Journal of Women's Health that was examining the experience of women in academia. Could you talk a little bit about sort of why you felt compelled to do this work? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, in, in 2013, Cheryl Sandberg came onto the scene and really changed this like conversation around women in the workforce with this these two simple words of lean in. And the Facebook CEO's best-selling book basically sent the message that women can tackle gender inequity in part by overcoming what she described as their internal barriers, such as lack of confidence or hesitance to negotiate that prevent women's rise to the top. And on one hand, encouraging women to lean in can sound empowering. Uh, But on the other hand, this message places much of the responsibility for achieving gender equity on women. And the book's legacy was captured in that lean in mantra. But asking women to lean in reinforces the view that not only are women the solution to the problem, 
but even worse, that they brought it upon themselves. And so our goal with bringing this group of academics from very diverse backgrounds, you know, we had students involved, department chairs, uh, president of a professional society, and kind of everything in between involved in this writing group, we really wanted to capture uh, in a comprehensive way the literature surrounding gender equity in academia, and then to provide actionable strategies and how uh, universities and other academic institutions can implement policies and procedures that would lead to improving gender equity rather than this kind of lean-in mantra asking women to be the ones that are the solution to the problem. You know, I was really impressed that just as you had just mentioned, that the breadth of disciplines that were captured in, your, in the team that worked on this, um, you know, how did, how did the band get together? So, so the band originates in a Facebook messenger group. Basically, we have a group of women who um, some of us went to grad school together, and then we've invited friends along the way. So we kind of have this conglomerate of women across the country in different positions. Some are in academia, some are in industry, but all at some point have been academics and we're all moms. And we use this Facebook messenger group as essentially a support network, a support system, and where we talk about, you know, the day-to-day -day life as an academic mama. And through those conversations, because so many of us experienced, um, you know, discrimination or injustice, uh, it just kept coming up over and over and over again. And these are some of the most brilliant people I know who work so hard and are incredible scientists and to see the experiences that they were having over and over again uh, really prompted us to say enough is enough and we have to do something about this. And we have to do it in a way that's going to get uh, the, the attention of academic institutions. And one way in which to do that is through publishing. So where did you get the title, first of all, Turning Shoots and Into Ladders for <laughs> Women and Faculty? I played Shoots and Ladders oh, yeah. as a kid, and I'm 72. <laughs> so that's a, this is an old reference. Yeah. And also, yes. <laughs> talk about your the takeaway, the takeaway in your study, the kind of main points, I think, that, that you, some of the discoveries you made. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the term Shoots and Ladders, uh, many of us played that game. I think it's a childhood favorite, but everyone understands the feeling of almost randomness that occurs when you pull that dude's card, for example, or the excitement when you pull that ladder-based card. But in academia, it's not random. There's plenty of data to suggest that it is very much driven when you pull that shoots card, it's not a random act. It's a reflection often of your gender identity or of your sexual orientation or your race, ethnicity, or um, your ability status or any intersection of, of these or, you know, other marginalized communities. And so we really wanted to get that illustration of the shoots, you know, uh, as barriers but those ladders that are that are meant to reflect policies and procedures that could be implemented that can actually lift marginalized communities within academia to a more equitable space. 
I love the visualization that these create because the shoots really is like yes. it's just shooting you out, right? <laughs> and that, you know, once you're on it, there's no way to, to get off of it, right? And the idea of the ladder being like, you know, this thing that you're using to climb up. So I do think that's really helpful because I think as a, you know, I just went through the 10-year process at my university successfully. Congratulations. Um, thank goodness. Thank you very much. Congrats. Thank you very much. I am still standing. It but it is. But there are all these moments. So, like, my father died in my second year. My mm. mother lives with me. I have a, a high schooler who, well, she's going to be a college freshman now, who I, like, you know, I am thankful she was a preteen and a teen because I have colleagues and friends who have much younger children who – it is a struggle to sort of get through to like manage life and then manage work. And I think that um, some of these shoots that you've identified around like the work life balance, I think are the ones that I think can be very hard to talk about as academic women, because we're supposed to pretend that we don't have that other part of our life. And so I think I really appreciated the way that you've broken this down to like, you know, around, around, you know, the recruitment process, around sort of the mentoring process, but then also the fact that there are shoots associated with your real life that academics, academics don't always sort of take into account. Yeah, I guess, you know, I wanted to add that I wasn't part of the original band. You asked about how the band got together and Michelle reached out to me. We had overlapped at a previous institution and I jumped at the chance to be involved in this because as a, as a more senior academic, one of my goals is to help ensure the success of young people, particularly young women, uh, because of the challenges I went through having a young family and and going through the tenure and promotion process. And so so I reached out or I, I responded immediately to to Michelle, who was leading this effort and doing so so ably and impressively. Um, so I was thrilled to be involved. And I feel like it's really important that this message gets to senior people because we we need to ensure that it's not just the young people who are going through that process who are making these changes. The change has to come from all levels. And so highlighting those shoots and ladders and highlighting the changes that can be made systemically uh, at institutions is really important. And I, I was really thrilled to be a part of this. You know, I, I, I'm still I'm mad at Richard once again for stealing the question I really wanted to ask. Yeah, so this is this is not uncommon, but but I, I thought it was a, a wonderful framing of of what you wanted to describe, and I, I thought it might be uh, useful and helpful to listeners to give an example of one of the categories mm -hmm. that you considered. I thought then and then an, an example of of a shoot and a and a ladder that applies in that category because I think you were very comprehensive in reviewing literature and reflecting on it. So just that, that just start there, please. Sure. So I think a, a, a shoot that's very tangible is one that is based in teaching evaluations. We see consistently that women are rated more harshly um, than their male counterparts in their teaching evaluations. So as an example, there was a study that was conducted by Emily Kazan at the University of Florida. And they took 136 students in an asynchronous online class and split them into two groups. So half the group was told that they had a male teaching assistant, and the other half were told that they had a female teaching assistant. And the students in the online class saw the photos that were accompanying the bios for each TA, and the bios were very similar. However, the same exact person fulfilled the teaching assistant duties for the whole class. And they used a text-based interaction in an online learning platform. 
So the gender of the TA was never observed beyond the photos that were provided in the profile pictures. So despite having the same person be the TA for both groups, at the end of the semester, the students scored the male TA higher on course evaluations, while the female TA got five times as many negative reviews. Gosh. <laughs> yes. Welcome to the world. So, so, now, yeah. so, there's, so now, now uh, talk about the latter that, that, that might be in response to, to that. Absolutely. So we see evaluation biases, not just for gender, but for other traditionally marginalized groups. And so, you know, an example of a ladder that we could have is we could apply, you know, and you all are, are biostatisticians, so you would know how to implement this in a much better way than I would. But basically, you can have a bias range to scores to correct for the up to 20% difference resulting from sexism and racism that we see in, in teaching evaluations. And this is something that could be implemented across the board systemically, like uh, like Leslie mentioned, you know, we really want to be implementing things that um, are policy-based, procedure-based. And so that's an example of a ladder that we could implement that could be done across the board and really address these evaluation biases in a, a systematic manner. And I guess I would add that we can also just get away from using these types of evaluation systems that rely on you know, so much on on students who might have these implicit biases. And, you know, so some of the things that we've, we've tried to do are things like having uh, other faculty come in to review the, the teaching rather than just relying on student evaluations and de-emphasizing scores in the promotion and tenure process, uh, focusing more on other metrics of teaching that might be out there. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about women in academia with Drexel University's Leslie McClure and University of Florida's, Florida's Michelle Cardell. So one thing that, that really interested me about your study, and it, it also touched on things that, that I experienced in 20 years being a department chair at two institutions and, and always sort of worrying about this problem of, of diversity. One thing that I think's happened, and this is related to service, the service, and, and there was always this pressure to make sure women were represented on committees, did service work, and often they took on a big burden even though they were still working on tenure. And I always felt like, well, I really want this person on the committee, but I also know that it's going to take a lot of time. So how do you balance that? Especially, I think your finding, one of your findings was, you know, 51% of women are assistant professors and only 32% are full professors. That's, that's sort of stunning today, I think. But I felt like as a department chair, I was always wrestling with, I'd hire really good women, and then I felt like, they got used up as assistant professors. And then when they be, get tenure, they're asked to do all this committee work. So, and part of it is, so we have more diverse committees. <laughs> so could you address that? Absolutely. So I, I think you're spot on. Uh, so institutions, we really want them to tune in to how service loads are distributed. So the research shows that service allocations are up to one and a half times higher for women. And they're difficult for junior faculty to decline. You know, your department chair asking you to do something 
you want to make your department chair happy. Like host happy. a podcast, by the way. Like become, <laughs> become a moderator of a podcast. So I, I do have to say, Rosemary, in 20 years, Rosemary was my best hire. So, uh, But I did, make, I did make her do this podcast right away. I love it. Well, the, that one and a half times higher service load we see is driven by internal service such as departmental committees or or doing a podcast, mm-hmm. rather than the more prestigious external service, such as that which occurs within a professional society. And so, you know, it's important that promotion and tenure committees recognize service, but that department chairs, deans, and others in leadership positions assess the service loads and ensure they are distributed equitably. I, I hear you that, you know, you want representation from women on, on, on those committees. But let's be mindful about where are we placing women on these committees. We certainly want women to be on a promotion and tenure committee, for example. Do we really need women to be on the party planning Christmas party committee? You know, like think, you know, thinking about the, what is going to be the benefit to to your faculty, and are there resources that you can um, alloc- you know allocate to assist in some of the less prestigious um, service that isn't really going to benefit your faculty? And I'll add that this is also part of the reason why having mentors who aren't just the department chair is important because we need faculty to be able to go to their mentors to to get input about whether a committee or a service obligation is one they should agree to. And if you're a department chair, you know, as a department chair, I have a vested interest when I ask someone to be, to do a service activity that I want them to say yes, because otherwise I need to keep asking other people. But if I'm their mentor, I have an inherent conflict of interest. Uh, I also will add that this is not a unique um, situation for women, also for people of color and people from other minoritized populations that uh, the service burden has been shown to be uh, quite a bit higher than for for other other groups. Um, there's so much in this uh, study that I think we could just continue talking about for the whole episode, and I'm sure stuff parts of it will come up. But I do want to ask about the situation we're all living through now. I mean, you are our guest virtually, um, although the three of us, uh, Richard, John, and I, are actually in the studio for the first time um, physically mm. since COVID. But I do wonder how COVID is complicating all of this because already, you know, women and other, you know, people of other minority backgrounds are feeling overburdened and and are really sort of struggling through this. Again, you know, I I survived the tenure process largely because I also, like you, Michelle, had a a secret Facebook group of women I went to grad school who we are all moms. (laughs) And it's funny, right? Like (laughs) Facebook sort of is like telling us, well, Sheryl Sandberg is telling us we should lean in and we're all using, right? her platform to try to figure out how do we lean out? Like, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, But, you know, COVID does feel like it has complicated this. And I wonder if you guys could sort of weigh in on what you're seeing about how the pandemic is sort of, you know, uh, highlighting, that's not the right word, sort of. Yeah, exacerbating. Yeah, if I could start, I know Michelle's done some research in this and I will quickly yield to her, but I do want to say that it's, that as a department chair, what I've seen as a associate dean for faculty affairs, that the, this has been difficult for all faculty. 
And, um, you know, I do want to highlight that the challenges that we will talk about that women are facing, especially, um, have been, have been felt by everyone, particularly faculty with small children. Um, but the research has shown that it is definitely disproportionately impacting women. And I'll, I'll turn it over to Michelle. I know she's done some work in this area. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more, Leslie, that, you know, this is really, this global pandemic has highlighted existing inequities in our society across all levels. Um, And this is certainly the case for health inequities among black and brown communities, as well as, you know, early career researchers and especially uh, female early career researchers. So studies are showing that women are disproportionately bearing the load of additional caregiving, domestic and school responsibilities while schools and child care facilities and resources are, are limited during the pandemic. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm sitting here today with a four-year-old and a seven-year-old and school starts next week. And I feel like I'm in the same exact place as I was a year ago of trying to decide, do I pull my child out of school? Do I send them, but, you know, just ensure that they're wearing a mask all the time, despite our governor having a mask, like making it illegal, basically, for people to have a mask mandate in in the state of Florida. You know, as a parent of children who are too young to be vaccinated, I am terrified. Um, But but these are the issues that have continued uh, for so many who are, you know, trying to maintain their children in virtual school to decrease the risk of like further COVID-19 infection. And so with uh, Dr. Rebecca Kukowski and Rashma Jagsi, uh, we conducted a study evaluating academic productivity differences by gender and child age in STEM, in STEM faculty. So basically the two months before the pandemic started and the two months after, and we saw that regardless of gender, work hours plummeted for those whose youngest child was between the ages of zero and five. So generally, you know, studies show academics work anywhere between on average, like 50 to 62 hours, depending on what study you're looking at per week. And across the board, we saw, you know, about 50 hours per week was being conducted uh, following the pandemic, except in that group that had a child, their youngest child was between the ages of zero and five. And basically it equated to about 15 hours less per week. So they dropped to about 34 hours per week of being able to work when they had those those young children at home. Um, and then importantly, we know that there's intersectional risk factors, uh, particularly magnified for, for Black women and other women of color. You know, they're at the same time they're experiencing COVID-19, then the nation decides to have like a national reckoning with racism and discrimination after the murder of George Floyd. So there, there were so many things going on over the course of the last 18 months that I think it's really difficult to pinpoint what exactly is driving the increase in stress and anxiety and PTSD symptomology that we're seeing among folks. Um, But very much the data is clear that among parents with young children, having those young kids at home while still trying to maintain a full-time workload has been increasingly difficult. Yeah. And there have been a lot of reports in the media about the decline in women in the workforce across the board. And so uh, I think there's been some estimates that it will take 20 years to recover to where we were in 2019 and making progress with women in the workforce. 
Well, and, you know, I think that among that work time that you're just describing, there's there's all the time of how do you teach in a different modality than you've ever than you maybe ever learned in, and how do you do it effectively? So, and how do you do it on a, almost a moment's notice, right? So, and I, I will tell you as an academic leader that I've really struggled with empathy, and you know, from my perspective, the most important thing in the faculty for the faculty in my department is that they're healthy and that their families are healthy. But then I have to turn around and say to them, but I need you to do this and I need you to teach your class in a different modality and I need you to, you know, follow these guidelines and do these extra things. And it's in direct conflict with how I feel personally. And so it's been really challenging to to really try to support them in a way that they need. But at the same time, you know, we've I've been giving given mandates that we need to continue moving forward in our in our academic lives. Yeah, and it's going to be an interesting challenge whether rewards and promotion systems will be mm-hmm. tuned to how the cha- the expectations mm-hmm. have changed. So so many institutions are implementing COVID impact statements um, that allow faculty to give whatever background they want about the impact of COVID on their academic productivity. At Drexel, we're allowing it for the next six years. So the institution is acknowledging that it's not just a one-year or two-year uh, impact on one's career, but rather it's, it's got some longevity in terms of the impact. Leslie, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you about um, your work with the ASA's Task Force on Sexual Harassment and Assault, yes. um, which, you know, is not entirely tangential to this conversation, but I do think it's important yes. that we bring it up before we wrap up our conversation today. Yeah, so the without getting into too much background about how the task force evolved, there's a lot of evidence that women leave STEM fields at higher rates and that some of that may be associated with, um, with harassment and assault that they experience in the workplace. And so the ASA task force spent a little bit over a year uh, thinking about how the American Statistical Association plays a role in supporting women and supporting um, a, a culture that is inclusive. And so we came up with a set of guidelines. So, so actually for ASA members, when you join, when you agree to uh, come to a conference, you now have to agree to abide by a conduct policy that includes um, a number of behaviors that you will agree not to engage in. Um, and in addition, the ASA now has an ombudsperson that is um, responsible for um, receiving um, notification about instances of sexual misconduct and adjudicating them and then reporting back to the ASA. And then the ASA has an internal policy about how to manage those and um, what the consequences are. And so the the task force didn't actually develop that aspect of the policy. The ASA board did, but we provided input as to what we um, what we felt was important. And I think that that I think that a survey of ASA members was done in 2019. Although time kind of gets compressed and expanded, and our hope is that the ASA will repeat that to see if instances of harassment and misconduct. Um, and assault have decreased. And and 
I don't remember exact numbers, but suffice it to say that any instances of assault and harassment are too many. And there were substantive numbers of, of ASA members who reported being sexually harassed or, or being treated differently on the basis of gender um, during, during an ASA-sponsored activity. Well, thank you both so much for being here today. There is one one line in this this study that you guys produced that I do want to bring up as we wrap up, where you you and your authors write gender gender diversity among leadership has been positively correlated with profits, productivity, and creativity. And I wonder if, in an attempt to get people to do the right thing, putting pressure on the money might be a way to sort of work towards equity as we sort of try to fix everything else that needs fixing. Money talks. Thank you both so much for being here today. Well, thanks so much for having us. And and thanks to Michelle for leading, for really leading this effort and doing it with such enthusiasm and energy. It's been, it's great. We were just grateful to to have you join, Leslie. You made a huge impact on on where we went with with this work. So thank you for leadership and for for always being such an advocate for for women and other traditionally marginalized communities. It's great to see uh, senior scientists taking that taking that role stats and stories is a partnership between miami university's departments of statistics and media journalism and film and the american statistical association you can follow us on twitter apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program send your email to stats and stories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of stats and stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics